to Waypoints, the podcast of fly fishing travel, with helpful travel tips, news and events, destination profiles, great stories, and expert advice from seasoned and experienced traveling anglers. This is your backstage pass to the world of fishing travel. Waypoints is fueled by adventure and brought to you by Yellow Dog Fly Fishing, a hands-on specialty travel and booking company that delivers the industry's very best insider knowledge, logistical support, and trip preparation. Freshwater or saltwater, international or domestic, Yellow Dog has you covered. And now your host, Yellow Dog founder and director, Jim Klug. Welcome to a new year and a new decade, and thanks for joining us. Anyone that has been around the fly fishing for some time can tell you that this is an industry that is loaded with larger-than-life characters and personalities. Individuals gifted with great humor, insight, and a plethora of fishing stories that can last well into the night when you're hanging out around a campfire. Will Blair, the founder and owner of The Best of Kamchatka, is one of those characters. Will has been fishing and operating on Russia's Kamchatkan Peninsula for more than 20 years, and he's one of the most knowledgeable people in the business when it comes to discussing the region's fishing opportunities and Kamchatka's incredibly unique rainbow trout fisheries. Will Blair, welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Nice to see you, man. Well, it's good to have you here. Thanks for taking the time, and Happy New Year to you. <clears throat> you too. Well, Will, I want to start by asking you a little bit about your background, where you're from, where you grew up, that sort of thing. Um, so I grew up, I'm an Indiana boy, Midwest boy, uh, grew up in, in Northwest Indiana, right outside Gary, Indiana, <laughs> fishing Lake Michigan, warm water discharges. And then we had, a um, a house, my dad bought a little summer house up in Michigan and there was a spring Creek right there that had, and to this day has really nice brown trout and mayfly hatches. And when I was a kid, my folks would drop us off there. And we would run around in the woods in Michigan. And, and that's really where I learned to love trout fishing. And, and how did you find your way to fly fishing specifically? You know, we all start out as kids chasing what we can with you know, any rod or reel we could find. But how did you find your way to fly fishing? Um, you know, uh, that, I, I think it was just a period in my life in college when you know, I was I, I was actually spin fishing a lot and putting food in my larder because I was a poor college student and then right after college I was always very much into reading and 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 uh, books and literature and I and 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 and. I don't know. One of my dad's friends was a hardcore fly fisherman, Jarvis Petticord. Um, and he took me a couple times and it just kind of tickled my fancy. And I liked the literature almost as much as anything. Uh, the old Schwiebert books and Charlie Fox, uh, wonderful wilder trout. And some of those are just lovely stories. Uh, uh, Siloquies about humanity more than just fishing, but entwined in fishing, and and that you know that 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 and 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 the, the quiet the quiet. Uh, I'm always been a Jim probably won't believe this, but now I was thinking about this a little bit. What my history is? I'm a little bit of an introvert, and so when I got out of college, I wanted just more of my own time. Um, and, and I found it on the banks of trout streams. Quiet. Good, good place to be, for yeah. sure. So you started actually working in the fly fishing industry in the early 90s. 
if I recall some of our, yeah. our previous yeah. conversations. What was your first fishing-related job? Um, actually, Jarvis Petticord, when I was uh, home visiting my folks after college, said, well, you love fishing. Why don't you go make get a guide job? And so I got a great sporting journal. A friend of mine, Johnny Arterburn, and I wrote uh, all kinds of resumes to people. And uh, Dave Eggdorf at uh, Western Alaska Sport Fishing wrote us back and probably wrote us or called us or, and said, I live up in Hardin. And I said, great, we'll come up. I'll drug my, my drift boat up, and we uh, got our first job. And John and I went and worked on Upper Nushigak in 94. In 94 yeah. in Alaska. Yeah. And that led to another interesting chapter in your life. You uh, went to work at, as a guide at Katmai Lodge in Alaska for <laughs> literally one of the most legendary characters in the entire world when it comes to fishing lodges. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that experience at, at Katmai Lodge in those early days. Oh, so the... Um, I, I actually really loved the Upper Nushkak and, and, and that wilderness of it was really my deal. But at that time, John Randolph had just written an article about Kamchatka. Um, and my friend John went to work at Katmai. And, 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 and as Frank Smethurst says in Eastern Rises, they told everybody you could have a job in Kamchatka, Russia, if you switched. So I actually, in 95, spring of 95, came and interviewed with Guy Fullhart at the Denver ISC show in January to guide in Kamchatka. I, I really didn't want to guide on the Lagnac, but um, then, you know, I, I, they said you were going to, and then all kinds of crazy stuff happened, and Tony Sarp canceled the 95 season because he had some kind of issue with um, – I don't know who, uh, which was Tony's, one of Tony's MOs. And, so, and Tony was the owner of Cat My Lodge. Oh, He's just a total character. Yeah. And everyone in the industry who ever worked there, I mean, almost everybody. And if, if guys were funny, they all had a, a Tony Sarp imitation. Steve Pree, Guy Fullhard, all kinds of people had. I don't know if Guy did, but all kinds of people had imitations of Tony. I you know, just and it was a huge operation. Eight hundred and five anglers one summer on the Alagnac River, and a staff of well over a hundred. Yeah, thirty three guides was the most I ever saw. <laughs> you know, and and, and it was a really factory. yeah, it was really mostly a salmon fishery at that point. And I went there, and and there were so many great anglers guiding there at the time. Scott Howe, uh, John Clark, who was really, you know, kind of an unsung guy in Northern California. But I remember John Clark was a machine. He just could go catch more fish than anybody in the place and, and, and really efficient guy. And, 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 and it was when you have 30 guys all in their twenties, all talking about fishing all the time, you learn a lot about fishing. And it was one of the, you know, great experiences of my career and after two seasons there, I ended up going to Kamchatka, to the Japanova for them in the summer of 97. And that was your intro to the Kamchatkan Peninsula? Yep, I was through Katmai Lodge. So you got this Katmai roster of industry names that all spent time as guides there and, and really kind of a who's who in the steelhead and trout fishing world. Uh, but that is what led you to Kamchatka. So you're working a couple of years in Alaska and you get this opportunity to go over to a place you've been hearing about, but have never been. 
Right. And, and, and uh, 97 was okay. You know, one of the things that is, is a fascinating thing about Kamchatka is sometimes there's too many fish. And 97 on, uh, on the east side of Kamchatka on odd years is a pink year. In 97, the Japanova was so loaded with pinks, it was really tough trout fishing for a few weeks there. Um, you know, and, and we, we know a lot about the Japanova and a lot of the fisheries now that we've been fishing for a long time. And it's, it's actually held its own for many, many years. It's always been somewhat of a low catch ratio, big fish fishery and um you know 97 that's what we what i experienced and then the 98 when i went back and i'm head guide and and uh gee is now running mission and toby sprinkles somewhere else and i'm there with and andre uh, volokhanov and uh, we actually had andre volokhanov and andre konovalov that year <laughs> I'm amazed you can remember that. And 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 Andre uh, Konovalov was a Russian interpreter who worked for Perga Company, and he called. Uh, uh, actually, he didn't. Someone else called Volokhanov Terakhanov, which means the cockroach. Anyway, so Andre uh, Konovalov and I became very close friends in '97 and '98, sitting on the front porch having coffee every morning and just you know, discussing world politics. But in the summer of 98, uh, Tony Sarp, the notorious, you know, guy I worked for in Alaska had, uh, every week he'd been sending over 10, 12 anglers and $7,000 per person. And, uh, that was big money in the mid nineties. Huge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We were all like, wow, man. But then Andre would go up to a group leader every week and say, Hey, Hey, Scott, and Andre's English was so good. So he says, Scott, um, how much did you pay for your trip? And Scott would say, $7,000. Why do you ask? Oh, no reason. But every week, Tony Sarp, the owner of Katmai Lodge, was getting a comp trip and telling the Russian owner that they were getting a free trip. So they, at the end of the year, after 10 weeks of $7,000 a week, they told me at the end of the season, I was standing at the MI2 with uh, Anatoly Kovalenkov and, and Andre, and they said, just go home and tell Tony not to come back here. And <laughs> we're not, not going to take any people. He's not welcome, yeah. And so I went home, and I had been working in the uh, Katmai sales office for that season. And that's where I met my wife, actually. She was a manager for one of the part of the year of 98, and that's a whole long story. We don't have enough podcast. Um, but uh, 20 years later, I'm still married to her, and she still supports my Kamchatka. Uh, she calls it my uh, my mistress. And um, it, really a dream. And uh, so I, I left uh, Katmai Lodge in the fall of 98 and backpacked all over South America uh, for two and a half months with my now wife. And then started a company called Kamchatka Expeditions with a guy named a guy out of Glenwood Springs who has passed away. Um, and for three years, we had uh, a jet boat camp on the west coast of Kamchatka with a Russian gentleman named Victor Rebikov. And uh, he was our Russian contact and outfitter, and Rudy Steele was the American, and he had done quite a bit of bear hunting. Well, in the fall of 98, the owner of Katmai Lodge, Tony Sarp, was having a huge fight with the Russians 
about outfitting for the Sopachanaya Kamchatka Steelhead Project. And so we had th- two groups that were supposed to go steelhead fishing come to the Japanova in the fall of 98. And we actually took them fishing on the west coast of Kamchatka on a river called the Kolpakova. And to date, the Kolpakova may be the most num- numbers of rainbows I'll ever see. Um, that first float trip, we actually landed at a place we called the Makija Hole, which is rainbow trout in Russian. Um, and uh, before Ryan Lampers and I and, and, and the Russian uh, guide had our rafts blown up, uh, the, the six anglers had landed at least 100 rainbows <laughs> on mice, almost all of them, all 18 to 24 inches. That day, all of us fished five, six, uh, six anglers, three guides we caught six seven hundred rainbows that day it was that's crazy and we did it the next week with an 85 year old woman for two an overnight float and that's where i put a tent camp in 99 through 2001 well that that brings up this this next topic and and we'll go big picture here but what are the key things that you will feel you know really strongly that sets Kamchatka apart as a fishing destination? I mean, for instance, why would I make the effort to go to Kamchatka when I could just as easily say go to Alaska? What what about Kamchatka is so special? Well, so what's so special is is you can still to this day set foot on places where maybe you're the first one to ever cast a fly there. That the trout populations are in absolute perfect historical condition. Um, last summer, as an example, we were, uh, last summer uh, was our sixth year running rainbows from above, our f- full flyout program out of two-year base lodge. And uh, I had been looking at the map for a while at this spot because there were some springs and, and, and it really looked fishy, kind of low country, just, you know, tundra. And, and, and Yegor Halavina, uh, who's our head Russian guide, just a really lovely young man who's just turned, turned 32 December 17th is a... Uh, um, uh, I've known him since he was 11. It, it works rainbows from above with me. And he's looking at the, at the, uh, GPS topo and he's like, let's go try it. And this is a spot I've been looking at for 10 years on the map, 10 years on the topo on my GPS. And we fly 30 minutes there and it's an absolutely pristine spring Creek and we made it there three times in two weeks last season. And, uh, I mean, literally four anglers who go with us, if they each one of them doesn't hook 100 rainbows, I would be surprised. I mean, li- you can catch so many. It's really, it, it ultimately, from a guide standpoint, it's a little bit boring, but because it's netting, it's not really fishing but you can use dry flies and it's and and to see the abundance that probably was everywhere at one time at one time yeah and you know when when people say well i just go to alaska when one of the things i i i I had a guy book actually rainbows from above uh today on the way in to set up the show here in denver 
and uh, and he 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 fished last year on the knack and it's a lovely fishery and he had a great time and but you know I I I, I was thinking about it and the last time I saw another raft on our or or any other human on rainbows from above was August of 2015. This is where January of 2020. I mean, we saw a raft going down the Shishé River in August of 2015 when we were having lunch on the bluff above the little creek we fish. That's a tributary of it. And it was a bunch of Russian guys spinning down the river. We just don't, there's no people there. Yeah. And those places are getting harder to find these days for sure. Yeah. Well, Talk to me a little bit about the travel logistics involved in just getting to Kamchatka. Flights, routing options, visas, what's involved? And and I know that this has been an issue over the last couple of years because there were direct flights from Anchorage to Petropavlovsk. Then they went away for a season. Now they're coming back. But I think people have it in their minds that it's an incredibly difficult place to access. So so I, I, I've been through since 1997 six different airlines. Uh, multiple stoppages, 2009, 10, 11, there was a stoppage complete, uh, for three years. And I actually went and worked in Bristol Bay again as uh, running Rapids Camp sales office. And, um, it, it, but really it's not hard. You go from up to Anchorage, spend the night. The next morning, it's a four and a half hour flight to Petropavlovsk. And then you're in Kamchatka. The visa is super easy. Uh, I know that you guys have your own visa processor, processor, sir. And we work with Red Star Travel for many years. And I know your guys' people are real good. You fill out the paperwork. We have line by line instructions that I email people. You fill it on online. You send it in, and you get your visa back. And one of the really great things about Russia that they did, I think it was seven years ago, um, you can get a three or multiple entry visa for about a hundred dollars more which does a couple different things. One, you don't have to wait to the 90 day before you arrive to apply for a single entry 30 day tourist visa. You can apply anytime. Another thing that happens is you can go in and out anytime, you know, you can go with your wife to Moscow or St. Petersburg, which is lovely. Uh, or what we've learned, lots of people don't have that that de- to deal with the second time. It makes it way easier for them to come back. So it's actually increased people's repeat of coming back because now all they have to do is buy a ticket. That's right. And uh, Yakuchi Airlines had some internal problems last year. And as that's for a book, maybe. And <laughs> they stopped the direct flight from Anchorage. To but Petro. it did run for three weeks last season. At the end of the season, just like it had run the previous seven years, right? Perfectly, and they have a ten-week schedule. They have a perfect schedule. One of the cool things about it is it's really, and this is a little bit maybe misunderstood. The, the the flight from Anchorage is actually a charter run by Inter-Pacific Aviation and Marketing out of Narita, Japan, <laughs> which is headed by Mark Dudley, who lives in Seattle, and his boss is in Japan, Mr. Hada. 
all super good guys. They fill niche markets all over the East Asia, and they they really understand how to get this done. They the issue last year was one with Yakuti yeah, Airlines and their some internal in internal uh, so it was a, like a corporate takeover that almost happened. It's all fixed, all better. I predict another ten year run of flights to Kamchatka, but. People shouldn't wait around. I mean, things change. Uh, for instance, we talked about the Kolpakova River with the most trout I've ever seen. Well, there's now a big, giant fi- Russian fishing lodge at the mouth. They built a commercial fish processing plant at the mouth. None of those things were there 20 years ago. Yeah. It's not a static place. Uh, right. And, you know, the good news, though, moving ahead for the 2020 season, certainly, and, and you think the years beyond that is those direct flights Four, four-and-a-half-hour flight from Anchorage to Petro, back in play once a week. Yeah, I think it's, if anything, you know, one of the things that's, one of the challenges is there's so much opportunity in Kamchatka, and, and I, I, I've said it over and over and over again. As, as this goes on, I hope that we get more really good operators in Kamchatka because I feed off them. They feed off me. We show people a great time in a really spectacular wilderness. I, I don't see any downside to that. So maybe, uh, maybe you know, uh, five years from now, there'll be a couple of other operators, maybe 10 years. It, it, the airline is really the key because if you don't have that flight, it is long. You got to go through Moscow or Seoul, which I've done every year for 20 years and yeah i take my time though i spend a day or two in moscow or a day or two in vladivostok you know i don't try and kill it and i'll go in the long way this year because i go into preseason. um logistically the, the 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 key really to uh because uh, you come home, it really messes people up. They leave Monday night at 10 p.m. and they get home Monday morning at 6 a.m. Same day, a little dateline thing yeah. there. Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about the peninsula itself. I mean, it's huge, and there are very few roads found anywhere over there. Uh, it's rarely a case where you can simply drive to a productive river or into a camp. Um, talk to us about the general logistics that are involved once you arrive in Petro uh, and then need to move around the peninsula from there. What what happens? Okay, so there are lots of different ways to get around Kamchatka, but the only way to get around Kamchatka and have great fly fishing is in a helicopter. So, they, for instance, my, a lot of my competitors' programs with the fly shop um, – their, their programs are somewhat close to Petropavlovsk, so they oftentimes will fly right out of Petropavlovsk. Um, it's a little bit of a challenge because it's up against Avacha Harbor and the Bering Sea and surrounded by mountains. It can be a little bit of a challenge. So we, in 2000... Weather-wise. Yeah, yeah. weather-wise, because yeah. you can get fogged into the Avacha Valley there, and then you have to wait a day or two to get out somewhere. Um, so in 2007, we made a internal decision, Victor Rebrikov and Svetlana and I, uh, Svetlana Halavina, she's uh, Victor's business manager and, like, the most important important person in our business for 20 years. Um, And we made a decision, hey, let's get people moving the right direction, get them over into the Central Valley where it's almost always clearer, 
and then get them up to camp. So what we take a bus for three hours and, and sad, I'm sad to announce that it looks like it's going to be paved the whole way this year. <laughs> and, progress. Right? Yeah, progress. And so we, we do a three-hour bus ride. Fyodor has been driving buses for Victor since 1996. It's a beautiful bus. You know, it's from Asia, so it's got all kinds of silly dingle balls and stuff hanging all <laughs> over the place. But it's, it's really a, a, a very comfortable. You get to see a little bit of the peninsula. One of the things that I, I, I really, this is really important, Jim, in, in that things changed in uh, the 2010s when a big helicopter company came in called Vitas Avia. And when they brought 22 MI8s and two MI2s with them from Western Russia, that changed the whole ballgame. And they did that to uh, service Gazprom's wellheads on the west coast of Kamchatka, uh, like where we used to have our tent camp on the Kolpakova in that area. There's lots of uh, gas and oil exploration and pumping going on. And so Vitas Avia brought on all these helicopters. The, the benefit for us is we have lots of really nice, well-maintained, beautifully painted, nice helicopters. So everything's gotten way more f- efficient. And so when we get to Milkova after a three-hour bus ride, we take a 42-minute helicopter ride to Kazarevsk and, and then refuel there to jump out into the hardcore wilderness of Kamchatka north of the Kamchatka River. And we drop the people off at the Oz or the, our flyout people will break off and go up in their own little MI2 helicopter. So, Well, let's, let's talk specifically about the helicopters, Will. This is the number one question that I get all the time when I'm talking to people about the fishing over there. I hear <laughs> things like, well, I want to go. I know the fishing's amazing, but those old Soviet helicopters kind of make me nervous. How safe can they really be? Uh, and I know you get you've gotten this question for twenty years. I mean, what's your answer to that? So I, my answer is when I went over there in ninety eight and ninety seven, I would question. I would ask that same question. But then uh, there was a real tragic thing happened August twenty third, two thousand three. Um, <clears throat> Andre Bogdan and Eager. The pilot, co-pilot, and engineer that I had flown with the day before, pulling us out of the Azraniya exploratory trip, went down to uh, Petropavlovsk, grabbed the governor of Huzno Sakhalin and his entourage. It was bad weather. I remember I was up at Two Year Lake. The whole peninsula was really nasty. And Andre had flown for 29 years, Bogdan six years. Uh, uh, the uh, they, they are taking the governor and his entourage, 16 people, to Husno Sakhalin, long flight, extra fuel. The governor demands to go see Apollo Volcano. This is all on the black box. Every one of those, every single helicopter in Kempchak has a black box, and it's all recorded. And uh, he demanded to go do it. Andre said no. There was a big argument uh bogdan took control of the helicopter andre relinquished it because he refused and was told he was going to lose his job by the governor of sakhalin bogdan piled it into the side of the mountain and killed everybody uh putin sent in a special envoy heliturka which was the name of that company and has never flown since i think they actually someone bought that name um 
and put a helicopter up last summer with that name, but never flown since. And they completely changed uh, pilot protocols, weather protocols. It became, actually, for a few years after that, it became strict. I mean, to the point where it was just, if it looked like it was going to rain, they, the pilots would say, I don't have clearance. So it's actually loosened up a little bit. But one of the things about it is they're super well-maintained. These are professional pilots, professional mechanics. So at Rainbows from Above, our our flyout program, we have an MI-2 that was built. We have a couple of them. They were built in 1991 in Poland. Uh 26412 was just rebuilt last winter. It's beautiful inside and out. Uh, uh, we have basically two pilots that work with us. Dima's a 18,000 hour uh, uh, heliski pilot right now. He's really, really incredible. And, and then Veloja has been flying, I think this will be 36 years on Kemchek, and I call him the accountant. And if there's a blueberry patch, he's going to land there because he loves to pick blueberries. But it's so safe. I mean, there's such strict protocols on everything. There's no just getting up in the air. We call in every day. They know where we're going. They know it's all just like you're in the U.S. I mean, it's all really very strictly controlled. Well, that, that's good to know because I think that misconception is out there with a lot of people, especially that haven't been. Right. Um, well, let me ask you this. What are some other misconceptions that might hold somebody back from booking a trip and heading over to Kamchatka? I mean, people say, oh, boy, you know, there's bears all over the place or the mosquitoes are crazy. I mean, you're definitely in the wilderness, but, you know, the realities are usually a little different than, than what people think initially. Well, I, I, there are a lot of bears. Um, one of the things that's really fascinating, having worked in Katmai Park and Kamchatka, is the bears of Kamchatka are hunted. So they're very rarely an issue. You, you certainly aren't uh, fishing with them all around you. Like you do in Alaska. No way. And they tend to run away. They tend to be somewhat spooky. I mean, they can, there are giant bears there, and we do see them. As a matter of fact, I remember you and I saw a really huge bear on the Azernaya upriver one day. You know, what happens in Kamchak is, is those bears all show up about two days within a day or two of the salmon and then everybody's happy and there's fish and bears everywhere but not not they don't know what humans are there and if they're big and old they usually know what the working end of a gun is so they tend to stay away from us so i, I would never not go to Kemchaka because of bears there's no problem at all um mosquitoes yeah i don't know they're no worse no better than alaska same animal um, what other misconceptions that it's hard fishing that you need to be good to go there, that it's somehow like the epitome of you have to mend and do everything right, which is exactly the opposite of the fact. What we do is really easy fishing. As a matter of fact, I demand people quit mending as soon as they get in a boat with me. I want them to just throw it out there and swing it around and hold on. I mean, we're dealing with super aggressive fish. I, I, I think that that's one of the biggest misconceptions. And I think another big misconception is that we spend all kinds of time in town. We're not in town for 
20 minutes, clear customs, bing, bang, boom. I, I hear uh, all the time guys say, my wife doesn't, or my wife says no Russia, and my uh, afraid for me, going to get mugged. and then uh, It's impossible. All that's impossible. We're, we're, we are uh, welcomed with open arms. Uh, my Russian partner loves Americans. As a matter of fact, he pretty much only wants American customers because we behave nice and gentlemanly and, you know, really, really, um, we're, we're, we're welcome with open arms. I wish more people knew that. Well, that's good to know. And, and I'm, I'm glad I asked that. So let me ask you this. What's the most important thing to keep in mind for those that are headed to Kamchatka for the first time? A little, let's talk a little bit about expectations and the simple question of who should go. Uh, Jim, you know I'm uh, who I am, so I think everyone should go to Camp Jack. But, yeah, the, <laughs> I, I knew you were going to say yeah, that. Well, yeah. uh, the, the the honestly, I think uh, who should go is anyone who wants to see real hardcore, the last real hardcore wilderness. What do I think expectations wise? You know, uh, I, I think that I talk, we talk about hundreds of rainbows and all this stuff, but it's still real fishing and they're still wild animals and they're still in their native environment and you still have to try a little bit, you know, and, 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 and so when, when the thing that happens at Kamchatka is these fish don't pot up. So it's not like below Flaming Gorge on the green where there's a run with 10,000 trout you, you see in it. That's just not the nature of the beast in Kamchatka anywhere. There's one here, two there, three here, four there, two here. And you have to f- move along to actually be successful and catch a bigger number of fish. When you talk about guys who catch big numbers of fish in Kamchatka, I can almost always tell you that they are somebody who, uh, I, I always tell everybody, I make one cast in a spot. If I don't get a bite, I never cast there again. And I just keep strolling and fishing. And I stroll and fish. You and I fish together, Jim. You know, I remember our day on not Lower Oz on 2012. It was on fire, but we were strolling and fishing. Yeah, you cover some ground. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we never nymph fish. We never indicator fish. We never bead fish. We use streamers, dry flies, and, um, and, 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 uh, mice patterns which is the mousing is what everyone wants to talk about but i think one of the other misconceptions about kimchak is that there's no mayfly fishing no dry fly fishing with us being better and better every year uh we're definitely doing there's incredible hatches that is the major difference in kimchak and alaska uh bruce king who is a head rainbow trout biologist on the kenai river for adf and g for 26 years came and fished the oz with me as a guest and uh he took home a bunch of scale samples from the Oz of 20-inch rainbows. And the result was he thought they grew about 20% faster than a comparable Kenai River fish. And the only explanation for that, because the salmon relative, you know, flesh and eggs, that's all relatively the same as a macroinvertebrate, all the mayflies, caddisflies, stoneflies. All that biomass. All, all that biomass that doesn't exist in Bristol Bay that does exist in Kim so there are times where I'll dry fly fish almost all day. 
And people don't know that about Kamchatka, I don't think. No, that's a great point. Fish in the hatches for sure. Well, let's talk specifically about the fish for a minute, Will. I mean, what's the deal, in your opinion, with the rainbow trout up there? What makes them special or any different from, say, the rainbows that we have in Montana or elsewhere in the lower 48? I mean, you talked about you know the macroinvertebrates and the fact that the hatches are um, thick and, and they do probably have more diversity on what they're eating. But... I mean, these are kind of the original strain of rainbow trout, right? This is, in, in, in a lot of people's opinion, this is where it all began for rainbows. Right. And so uh, the biologists have uh, over told me that Teagill, which is a huge river, the Sadaka program the fly shop has is part of it. And some of the rivers we fish on our fly out program is part of it. And uh, they call that the birthplace of rainbow trout, steelhead, and salmon. And, and that whole uh, uh, Cape Utolic, the big knob up there where the Wild Salmon Center has their uh, steelhead programs. And, and that whole area is super rich. So they're native. They just have ne- they've never been planted. They've They're never as been pure as it gets. Yeah, and they, you know, the Russian biologists will tell you that there's different strains of rainbows in in Kamchatka, and they actually call the ones that are sleek and silver more the uh, uh, they call those American rainbows. And the the colored up and heavily spotted ones with a really large peduncle and and uh, uh, they call those Kamchatka rainbows. So there's a discussion, there's a machination that's going on there, because um, uh, 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 the Ru- and the Russian biologists actually still keep them in uh, the, the the trout family. They are in a Pacific salmon for the Russians. Uh, uh, it's a micus, but um, uh, they, they're just pure. And one of the things about them not being fished and being so aggressive, they're, they're aggressive. They, they're killers. They're angry. They, they are angry. <laughs> I mean, they're like mad trout. Every year on Oz and I, two, even this year, uh, this was my 10th year guiding on the Oz. I still, I have some secret spots because I'm a little older and a little lazier and fish the lower river that are too big for me to wade the boat down and not really. So I back the boat down with the motor and these rainbows will come right into the jet wash. Don't care. The running motors moving them around and they're still chasing the fly. They don't care. They're They're, super aggressive. They're angry. And that's the one thing that shocked me my first trip over there is, especially when you're skating and you're seeing these fish react to the fly, I mean, they're pissed. They're just furious. And they are coming after it and they're coming after it. And a lot of times... When you conjure up the image of a rainbow trout, it's this gentle, you know, fish quietly sipping a PMD on a scum line on a, you know, a, a seam of a river. And, and they're these fragile, delicate little creatures. And you go to Kamchatka and they're just predators. We, we, I, was, uh, I was with Frank Wake. Uh, I was actually a guest from Anchorage. And we were on, the, on uh, below camp on uh, Azernaya. And we're mousing them up. And I w- look downriver uh, on the south bank, and, and on this gravel bar, there's a, a, a mink, a full-grown adult mink. He's running around on a gravel bar, and he jumps in the river. And this is in a spot we call Rainbow Alley, and it's just loaded with rainbows. And this adult mink, it's a two-foot-long animal, starts swimming out. And as soon as it gets in about two or three feet of water, it starts getting hit by rainbow trout. <laughs> now, this is a, a two-foot-long 
you know, three inch in diameter animal and these trout are trying to kill it. <laughs> Did it make it? Yeah, it made it all the way across, but <laughs> it's a little worse for the wear. Yeah, I didn't like it very much. <laughs> and I watched it. They, they are apex predators in the river, um, and they're just not afraid of anything, really. Well, and, and they're certainly the big draw for anglers that go to Kamchatka. But what about the other species that are there and available for the angler? And I know it varies you know, from river to river, different watersheds, you're going to find different things. And, and for that matter, not every river over there holds rainbows, right? But what are some of the other species people can find throughout Kamchatka? Uh, so there are big grayling. Uh, the Azraniya has big grayling and big numbers of big grayling. Um, uh, things on the Kamchatka River have grayling. There's lots of rivers that have tons and tons of dolly barden. Um, uh, there's all kinds of different char. One of our flyout program rivers, we fish, uh, we catch uh, a char in a called a black stone char, which was actually only really written about in 1991 um, when they first really discovered it on the upper. Yelovka drainage and is super cool fish. There's all kinds of different chars. There's all five species of Pacific salmon, and then there's the cherry salmon on the west coast. Uh, we we really don't spend much time. We'll silverfish on the Azraniya, but that's about it for salmon. Um, there are so uh, that, that that question is oftentimes I think about kunja. You know, everyone. There's been a lot of talk about Kunja over the years, and they're great sport fish. Um, they truly are great, nasty, mean devil. Uh, they're a little bit unpredictable because they're a, a, an adramous fish that goes out to the coast and comes in. Uh, but they uh, can get huge. Too. They can get huge. And, and I've had some uh, clients hook 40 inches, you know, the things weigh 25 pounds and uh, eat your arm off. And we haven't landed the biggest ones. We just, you, they wail on you. Um, on our rivers, I, honestly, we don't have big numbers of big kunja. Uh, last year was maybe the best numbers of pretty big Kunja Nas I've seen. But the Japanova is definitely the one that has genetically the biggest Kunja on Kamchatka. Um, you know, maybe as the years go by, the, the real great Kunja fishing, apparently, my Russian friends tell me, is in an area called Ohatsk, which is where Kamchatka crooks around onto the mainland and that area up there has lots of beautiful rivers with big kunja in it but it's hard to get to i mean if kimchak is hard to get to ohatsk is really hard to get to <laughs> well let's talk a little bit about the season up there will i mean you know it's summer fishery and the season is short um but there is indeed a difference between you know the early part of the summer the middle part kind of later in the season talk to us a little bit about that as far as seasonality goes Sure. And, and that's a great question. And so pre-salmon, every trout is looking onto the surface. All the rivers have had big caddis hatches and may still be having big caddis hatches go off. Every trout's looking up. So the first couple of weeks, right before the 1st of August, we'll start seeing big pushes of salmon. Um, and the fish prior to that are going to be up against the banks. And you mentioned earlier, uh, not every river has rainbows. And, and one of the things that's really important, and there, there's a plant and you see it in a lot of videos and all my drone videos and, 
uh, it, there's a plant in all the rivers called Buttercup. It's a Kamchatka Buttercup, and and that's part a huge part of the Kamchatka Rainbow Life history. Uh, prior to the salmon coming in, they're living right in the Buttercup, and they're living right on the banks. So we, you can really target them and dry fly fish really well. And once the salmon come in, they they tend to migrate with the salmon and move to the salmon reds and sometimes right on the salmon reds. It's not like Bristol Bay where you're chasing sockeye spawners, but it's mostly chums and kings. And we'll fish by the chums and kings for three, four weeks, and then they'll all die. And then it kind of switches back to more dry fly fishing, a lot of flesh fly fishing in the fall. Um, mousing can work anytime. That's one of the funny things about uh, Kamchatka is one of my favorite moments uh, of guiding Kamchatka. On Nasr and I, we like to, there's huge, huge chum, chum spawning beds. And I like to walk the boat down the middle of the chum spawning bed and the guy stand up real high in the boat. And I'm sitting there, I'm standing in the water and the guy right next to me has got mouse on and we're watching this two foot rainbow up against the bank and it goes up and grabs a bunch of eggs when this chum hen shoots them out and then drops back against the bank and a yellow mayfly floats over and he tips up and grabs a yellow mayfly and then my guy's got a mouse on it. I said go ahead and he wings it in there and the thing clobbers a mouse you know so that is part of the whole deal they will eat the mice all the time they're equal opportunity feeders yeah <laughs> you, you, you know it does change though and one of the challenges and one of the things i like about the Azranaya river in particular is it's wide enough that uh, if you, you have you know i mentioned early in this that you can have too many fish you can't have too many fish and some of the when we had the camp on the Kulpakova, uh i remember one season there were so many salmon on the upper river you couldn't catch a trout up there to save your life and this guy who was a a um trapper came by our camp he'd been on the river 50 years and i said hey man uh where are all the rainbows right now and he said take your fancy jet boat and drive half an hour down river and start fishing where the river gets big and you'll find them there. And sure enough, I went down that next day, and there were all the big rainbows. They got away from those salmon. And so the Oz is wide enough that we don't have to deal with that. Two years far enough in the headwaters, it's only chums and kings don't have to deal with that. You know, that's one of the key challenges that I hear people have had over the years in Kamchatka. And I heard it a couple of years ago when they called the west coast of Kamchatka the Humptopolis where there were so many humpies that it was really hard fishing for rainbows. So being on the right river at the right time is everything over it's there. Key. It's like key. Like anywhere else. It's key. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, give me a, your quick um, thoughts on weather conditions in general. Um, if people are headed to Kamchatka to fish during the summer season, I mean, similar to Alaska, layers, you know, it can be T-shirt, warm weather. It can be kind of rainy and cool. What are your thoughts? Yeah, and I, I think that... Uh, uh, you have to be prepared from uh, two years ago, opening week, July, middle of July was one of the coldest weeks of the season. And uh, you have to be prepared for that all the way into mid-September. Um, so the season's going this year's going to be July 13th, first anglers show up all, all the way to September 14th. Um, July tends to be hot, muggy, you know, not really very cold. 
but it can be. Uh, August is what they call the rainier time on Kamchatka. Uh, you tend to have a little bit more rain, a little cooler. Uh, it's maritime. Kemchak has got uh, the Sea of Ohotsk on one side and the Bering Sea on the other. It's a rainy and cool place just in general. Um, one of the things I love is this year uh, with uh, IPAM and Yakutia have stretched out our, uh, our season back to where it should be, which is the first two weeks of September which personally are two of my favorite weeks. On Kamchatka, it tends to dry out. It's fall. The colors are changed. The tundra's red. The rainbows are going nuts. You know, it's really a beautiful time of the year, and it tends to dry out a little bit, too. Nice. Well, uh, I want to ask a couple questions specific to gear and equipment, Will. And I know we could talk for another two hours about this. So I'm just going to fire things at you right here. You kind of give me your quick answers on this. Uh, Someone's headed over for the first time. They're wondering specifically what they're going to need for their Camp Chotka trip. So let's go over some key pieces of equipment. First of all, rods and reels. What am I bringing over? Six, seven weight rods. Okay. I like a quality reel. I mean, you know, one of the things that happens is if you you can hook a 30-inch rainbow anywhere, any day, and if you have an old junky reel and you lose it because of that, who are you going to blame? So I like good quality reels. Hatch, I'm a hatch pro and have been forever. It's great. Uh, Orvis makes nice stuff, super cost-effective. TFO rods, all great. I mean, right now, it's hard to... <laughs> To buy junky equipment in the fly fishing business. Yeah, a lot of stuff's gotten good. Six and seven weights. Six and seven weights, nine Perfect. foot. Nine foot, floating line. Uh, let, let me ask you about lines. Yeah. Because uh, floating trout line to match the rod, but are there times when you're fishing a sink tip with streamers? You know, I really don't fish sink tips when I guide. I, I find it just, you know, some of these new intermediate clear sink tips are kind of got my fancy a little bit but honestly i'd rather put on another two feet of 10 pound maxima to get it another six inches deeper than make someone cast a sink tip line all day and so your rivers you really don't need no it's shallow floating lines now how about flies and again i know we could talk for an hour about this but what are some of your absolute go-to patterns that you're going to have in your box when you're up there uh dalai lamas black and olive dalai lamas black and white, um, pink and white, Dalai Lama. So an assortment of Dalai Lamas, a lot of sculpting, you know, small patterns, things like that, uh, flashy uh, little uh, fry patterns that are kind of smaller than most people would use, but they're deadly. And anything with flash. Uh, the Kamchatka fish, are, you cannot throw too too big a fly or too bright a fly in Kemchak, it's impossible. They, they like the bling. They like the bling. I, I also, I, I have a nice assortment of those. I have mice, you know, uh, I'll, I'll come back to that in a second, and dry flies, and basically parachute atoms, some chubby Chernobyls, and some big elk hair, some Goddard caddis, some big tens caddis like that and dark and light and and you pretty much can cover most things they're not picky uh, i take basically three spool four spools of tippet i take 15 pound maximum ultra green 12 pound maximum ultra green 10 pound maximum ultra green and 2x for dry flies that's all you'll find in will blair's 
guiding repertoire. There's no need. The fish are not going to be leader shy. Ever. Ever. Ah, that's perfect. All right, so how about this? How about waders and boots? Obviously, you're wearing waders all day long. Um, what are you liking for waders and also the sole of your wading boot? I'm so glad you asked that question. So, <laughs> waders. Everybody needs chest waders. Uh, not just because, I mean, like in the Oz and I program, we take all comers, right? I have a 89 year old gentleman coming this year and he's going to stay in the boat, but it might rain all day. I want chest waders with a good high quality waist, you know, raincoat. So Gore-Tex waders, Sims, you know, there's lots of, but I'm a big fan of Sims. Um, how about how about the soles of your wading boots? This is the key. Okay. So right now, everybody, a lot of states, Alaska is uh, felt as outlawed. A lot of places felt as not allowed. Well, the rivers, because of the nature of them being so rich, the, the rocks are slimy in Kamchatka. So I like felt. And so I tell all our guests to bring a brand new cheap pair of felt boots. You can buy a Sims, I think, has a pair that's $130. You know, you're going to go to Kamchatka. Why not have exactly what you need? You can't bring anything with you. I'm fine with people if they want to bleach or treat their felts that they already use. I want them treated and bleached, and, and it, there's a protocol. Um, but most people just bring brand spanking new ones. I take a brand spanking new pair over there every year. That's right. Bring, bring a new pair that's fresh out of the box, fish it for the week, and then leave them for the guides. Sometimes, yeah. yeah I mean, you know. <laughs> we talked a little bit about clothes and layering. I mean, it could be warm. It could be, you know, uh, super wet and drizzly and cold. So you got to have lots of layers, just like if you were going to Montana in the fall or Alaska in the late season. I think most people, the thing they forget the most often is a stocking cap. There you go. So one thing I haven't asked you, Will, um, Kamchatka is not an easy place for an American to do business, to own a company. You've got a pretty unique partner and a pretty unique team over there. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so so I met Victor. And Victor's your partner, Invest in Kamchatka. Yep, Victor Reberkoff. And he owns a company called Utgard, which is his bear, sheep, and moose hunting operations. And he is a, a veterinarian for the Chukotske reindeer herders. Super brilliant guy. And, um, you know, really, really, really the real deal. He's not the kind of guy that you hear about. He's the kind of guy that you see. He's on every single helicopter flight in and out for 20 years. He's intimately involved with every single aspect, although he knows almost nothing about fishing. And never is. I've only been on one fishing trip in 20 years of working with Victor. But he can get anything done. He can. He does everything. He's the first guy to grab the barrel of fuel and shove it off. And if you aren't working fast and hard, you're in Victor's way. I guarantee you that. And so we, we do a lot of business. I mean, I expect I'm going to uh, – there have been years I've sent him over a million dollars U.S. and – I don't think he's ever cheated me out of a penny, and I don't think I've ever cheated him out of one. And that's how it happens 20 years later, right? And, uh, and Svetlana, who's his business manager, she runs the Oz Camp. You know Svetlana. She speaks perfect English. She's a larger-than-life character and is the mama, and she's the one who really makes the world go round for us. 
That's right. She runs the show. Yeah. Well, having good partners over there is everything for sure. So I want to ask you one final question. And, and well, what does the future look like for the fisheries in Kamchatka? Where do you see things in that area, say, 10 years from now? So 10 years from now, what do I think? What do I think? Hmm. If you would ask me that question 10 years ago, right now, I would probably give you a much different answer than I'm going to give you right now. Because actually 10 years ago, I had very little hope for Kamchatka. Poaching was out of control. People were desperate. No one cared. It was really kind of sad. Now, you know, the rivers that are easily accessible, like the Kamchatka River, have been hit pretty hard by commercial-level poaching. But I think that there's a new awareness that has risen. I don't know that we as Americans can take any real credit for it, but I think we can a little bit. Because we've gone over with this catch-and-release philosophy for rainbows. And I've said since very day one, a swimming, breathing rainbow trout on our Kamchatka River is a swimming $100 bill. And, and, you know, I don't know that they equate it to that because Russians actually are more romantic than that. But they're starting to get it. And they preach to each other. And it's become kind of the cool thing to be a catch-and-release fly fisherman in Russia. And if we can get them all on board, it's not only Kamchatka can we save. It's the Kola Peninsula. It's all that stuff by by the time and stuff happening over by Khabarovsk. It's all these things and places that Russia is so huge and has so much of. Kamchatka being a focal point because it's Pacific salmon and rainbow trout, but there's lots of other cool stuff there. If we can get them to buy in, which they are, then we got something. The future looks bright. Yeah, I think it looks good right now. The young Russians got it. They get it. Well, that's awesome. And Will, thanks so much for sitting down with us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time and telling us about your many years up there. Well, that's it for this episode of Waypoints, the podcast that is 100% dedicated to travel, adventure, and exploration. Be sure to visit yellowdogflyfishing.com where you can research and plan your next fishing trip, download the new Yellow Dog catalog, and stay current on all episodes of Waypoints. And always remember, no matter where you travel, how long it takes, or who you're with, no one ever regretted a life of adventure. This has been another episode of Waypoints, the podcast of fly fishing travel and adventure angling. Thank you for joining us and be sure to visit yellowdogflyfishing.com for more trip updates, travel news, expert advice, and adventure profiles.